here's the point. There's, there's some rather profound theology in that story, believe it or not, provided we reverse the subject. See, the good news of the gospel is that in spite of our total bankruptcy, God keeps on doing business with us. You, you follow that? And so as we go through the book of Romans, we are going to indeed discover just how depraved and spiritually bankrupt we are. But see, God has a solution to our problem. But this book is about the good news. This book is about the gospel. The gospel means good news. Paul tells us in Romans 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. This gospel is the good news. So church, let's discover what this good news is. Amen? We're going to start with verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's stop everything right now. Brack the truth trolley up. Mike, you're thinking, I thought you just said this was good news, and you're going to tell me about the wrath of God that's being revealed from heaven. I have a, I have a problem with this. I hear what you're saying. I, I really do. I hear what you're saying. Let me Before I go any further, let me explain something to you. By way of illustration, this past Thursday, you woke up, most of us. We woke up, we read the newspaper, and the headlines of the newspaper was, Cruise Liner brings 2,000 safely to shore. And you're wondering, really? (laughs) What is the big deal about a cruise liner bringing 2,000 safely to shore? I mean, that happens like every day. And you're kind of wondering, well, golly, I hope they had a great time without me. And then you discover, because you didn't read yesterday's paper, Wednesday's paper, so you, so on the front there, believe it or not, it's, it's entitled, Cruise Liner Begins to Sink, 2000 Rescued. And as you read the article, you discover that 2,000 went on this cruise liner. I think 2,000 is kind of a small number for a cruise liner. But 2,000 go out on this cruise liner, and they're having a great time. And something tragic happens in the, the boiler room, or whatever they call it way down there. And it begins to sink. And they send out a distress signal, and no one is responding. And it, it, they, they realize that their lifeboats are not properly functional bad news, and that they must have a huge boat to come and rescue them, but who would be able to do that? And finally, a large cruise liner hears the distress signal and shows up on time, and 2,000 safely board the cruise liner, and they're saved. Now, let me ask you this. When you read that article then Thursday morning again, Cruise liner brings 2,000 safely to shore. Is that not good news? Yes, it is. But you see, you would never know just how good that good news is unless you first knew just how bad the bad news was. So do you want to learn about the good news this morning? Then we're going to have to start first with the bad news. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness, excuse me, against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Wait a second, you think. The skeptic would be very quick to say, "Um, so there's a truth out there? that apparently I am suppressing? You mean to tell me that the Aborigines in the outback of Australia are somehow suppressing this truth by their wickedness? And Paul's response, excuse me, God's response is, yes, they are. And so you suppose, says the skeptic, that I too am suppressing this truth. I have studied. I'm not suppressing any truth. I have grasped the truth, and I do not believe that there is a God. And Paul would say to you, God would say to you, 
only because you have suppressed the truth. But let me continue, verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now I understand the skeptic's rebuttal, his questions, even his accusations. I understand that. And so my goal here this morning is to answer three basic questions. Now, if you're taking notes, write these down. Number one, what truth? What truth are you talking about that I have supposedly suppressed, the skeptic asks? What truth? Number two, how has it been known? This truth, for us to suppress it, has to be known. And Paul makes it clear that it has been clearly seen. God made it absolutely plain to them. First question again, what truth? Second, how has it been known? Because to suppress it, we must first know it. And then thirdly, how is our wickedness suppressing this known truth? Now, I may not be answering these questions one after the other. I'm going to be answering them in a, a group fashion as we go through this. But we are first going to need to look at this idea of what has been clearly understood, clearly seen by God's creation. I would venture to say this. Let me tell you my conclusion. I'm going to we are going to come to a point where we would conclude God's creation has his fingerprints all over it. As a matter of fact, let, let, let's use a different il illustration. That in God's creation, there are breadcrumbs that God has left that will inexcusably lead us to him. That is how clear this is. As a matter of fact, when we say that it will lead us to him, I am saying that we will not only come to a knowledge of his eternal power and divine nature, but we will realize that we are not that, that he is good and holy and I am not, and that each of us, including the aborigines in the outback of Australia, know this truth in their hearts that they are sinners. And that they are separated from this being that has created everything. And there is a cry within their hearts. How can I be reconciled with this creator? That is the bad news. It, it, it's good news in that we, we understand God and who he is. But it's bad news because when we look around us, we know that there is sin in this world. And I am part of that problem. And try as hard as I may, I cannot overcome this infection of sin in me. And God must give me the answer. Such that, here's our conclusion. Apart from us suppressing this truth, every single person ever born on the face of this earth is without excuse because they should fall on their knees and cry out, Oh God, reveal the way back to you, to me. Reveal this to me. Now, that's where we're going, and that's, we're going we're gonna to camp out for just a little bit there, and we're going to discover some tremendous implications of this. But that, my friends, is how clear these breadcrumbs are, that God in his creation has placed for us to clearly see and lead us to that place of utter brokenness and crying out to him. But, as Paul says, we suppress the truth by our wickedness. And so I want us to grapple with this. You mean to tell me that 
every single person born on the face of this earth will come to this very same conclusion. That's exactly, that's exactly what I'm telling them. So that no one is without excuse. Now, what does God do when the aborigine in the outback of Australia falls on his knees and cries out, oh, God, reveal yourself to me? God does have an answer for that. The answer is only revealed through his word. And that's the gospel. The question we're going to link together then is then how does God get that gospel to that aborigine in Australia? And he can. But we'll talk about that at the end. So when we look at verse 19, the very first word in your Bible is the word since or because. So he's going to explain to us how is it we are suppressing this truth. And he's going to answer, Paul's going to answer all three of these questions. What truth? How has it been known? And how is our wickedness suppressing this known truth? I believe that we can discover this. So the title of the message this morning is The Breadcrumbs of God. The first thing that we see that, he, that we need to unwrap here a bit is God's eternal power. Where do you see God's eternal power. And I'm not just talking about the scientist, and we have just discovered so much about this vast, incredible universe, but we're talking about even the ignorant. Those who, do, those who know very little about science in this world, they can look up into the heavens and they can see there is a God and he is eternal and powerful. Now, we want to make a distinction. It does not say divine power. But it says eternal power. It's purposeful. So let's discover this concept of eternity or everlasting or infinite and power. <coughs> the question that we would naturally ask is this. How did something come from nothing. Every single person, whether they voice it that way or not, will ask that question. How did something come from nothing? Now, let me just say to you that the Greeks wrestled with this because for something because they had they realized that something cannot come from nothing. They knew this. But if there is a something that is outside of our reality of time, space, and matter, or energy, then that something has to be so powerful that he put us here and he created us, i.e. God. And if there is a God, my friends, when you follow the breadcrumbs, you are accountable to him. So how are they going to deal with this? Their proposal was the universe was eternal. So, hey, if the universe was eternal, it's always been there, and there was no creator, there was no first cause. But here is the problem. Even, even you can think through this, that it's, it's so simple, you, you don't need to have calculus or anything to think through this. How many of you are, are aware that mathematicians call infinity a, an imaginary number? Are you aware of this? They call it an imaginary number. Now, I learned that in, in high school. Okay, infinity is an imaginary number, but even you know this. Let me just, let me test you to show you that you even know this. It's an imaginary number which mathematicians say cannot, cannot exist in our real world, time, space, and matter, or energy. It is because of this. Let me give you one example. There are many that we could go through. You have an infinite number of objects. You number them. That in itself is impossible, I understand. But for the sake of argument, an infinite number of objects, and they're all numbered. Now, I'm going to ask you to do this. Remove all of the odd-numbered objects. How many objects are you removing? An infinite number, right? Okay. What do you have left? You have all of the even-numbered objects. And how large is that group? Infinite. 
So here's your very simple equation. Infinity minus infinity equals oh, infinity. That's impossible. It's supposed to be zero. Math tells us in the real world, when you have a set and you subtract an equal you, and you subtract the same number, infinity minus infinity, we should get zero, but we don't. We get infinity. That tells me something. Mathematicians know this. So they take that, that concept of infinity, they call it an imaginary number. It doesn't and cannot exist in our reality. So I would have to say to the Greeks, good try, guys, but you really knew, just thinking through this concept of infinity or eternal, an infinite number of days or time, that that can't exist. But you see, there is a conclusion then that is inevitable that they, they cannot accept, and that is, therefore, there must be a God. And take a few more, gather a few more breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs, I am accountable to him. When you ask the present-day science, secular scientist, so where did, how did something come from nothing? Here's what they will answer. Well, you first take a quantum vacuum. Wait, wait, wait a second. You can't do that because that quantum vacuum is a something. And here's what they all do, and there is no exception. They always start with something. Always. I don't care if they use these nice words like quantum, which means really, really, really small. I don't, I mean, it, it's still small, and it's something. You can't do that. Maybe you've heard this joke in which the science, secular scientist is having an argument with God, and he finally says, look, the scientist says to God, I can create things just like you can, so I don't need you. And God says, oh, really? And the scientist says, yes. And God says, then you start. And he says, I certainly will. And the scientist reach, reaches down and grabs a handful of dirt. And God says, wait, wait, wait. Go grab your own dirt. You see, the scientist will always start with something. There is no answer except there is a God. And the secular scientist cannot accept that because... This is the way they think. There is the material universe, and that is all. Well, why do you say that? Because science can only quantify and measure the material. It cannot prove God. It cannot test if there's a God. Though I would disagree, because God leaves his breadcrumbs. He leaves the evidence of it. Before we could see an atom, we could see what the atom did. And so we knew that there was the atom and the electron and such because of what it left its fingerprints, so to speak. Science knew that there were electrons before they could actually see them. So I'm going to suggest to you, no, science, you know that there is a God you don't have to be able to come up with a scientific proof for God, but you can see his breadcrumbs and you can see his fingerprints in creation. Just because you can't prove something does not mean it doesn't exist. Do you see the fallacy of that? Well, if I can't prove something, then it must not exist. So the only thing that can exist is the material universe. So let me ask you this and we'll move on. How much does logic weigh? You see, the rules of logic upon which science is founded is immaterial. You cannot weigh it or quantify it. It is just there. That would just be one example of something that's beyond the material. But the, the scientists cannot accept what lies beyond the material universe. Therefore, miracles cannot exist because God cannot exist. There is only science and what science can discover. So even though, Mike, you're going to lay out these breadcrumbs for me, I cannot accept your conclusion because it goes against everything that I, everything that I believe, that there is only the material world. Well, let's go on. And so what we what we've realized is this truth, that even science has discovered for us that, let, let, me, let me word this carefully here. 
that something, for something to exist, for something, something, every, here we go, everything that has a beginning has a cause. Did you follow that? Everything that has a beginning has a cause. Science has shown this. They're, they have never discovered something that had a beginning that did not have a cause. It has never happened in all of their millions and millions and millions of, experience, of experiments. They, science knows this. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. Now, what science has shown us is that the universe has had a beginning. Now, they call it the Big Bang. I call it something else. But they know that the universe had a beginning now. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Do you follow that? My question then, what caused the universe? And all science can tell us is they have to start with something. Everything, everything has a cause. This shows us that however something came into being, it is outside of that something. It is outside of my experience and my reality and your reality of time, space, and matter. It's, it's beyond that. And this being, this entity, is super, super powerful. And, and if we're going to quantify it, we might as well just say he's infinitely powerful. And if you have ever looked at the, uh, the vastness of the universe, it will absolutely blow your mind. And, and you will see the largest star compared to our sun. And the largest star would go from uh, diameter, would go from the floor to the ceiling here. And the sun would be a dot next to it. And that is something that God created, immensely powerful with all of its atomic energy in it. God created that, or this being created that. And this being, he had to have existed from all eternity because he could have no beginning. Why? Because everything that has a beginning has a cause. So he is outside of that. He is eternal and he is all-powerful. The eternal power of God is clearly seen in this universe. There has to be a cause. Something cannot come from nothing. Well, now let's look at his divine attributes. Now, the, his divine attributes are going to describe God for us. They're going to kind of, okay, if there is an eternal being who is all-powerful, then let's kind of fill in the gaps here. Let's, let's describe this eternal being. They do this through what's commonly called the teleological argument. Now, I'm going to be quick on this. There's books are written on this subject, and I realize that we must be brief even as we see the time moving quickly by. This eternal being I'm going to suggest to you is unfathomably intelligent. Because when, I, when we look around this world, we see design everywhere, everywhere. We don't just see the natural workings of random processes. Let me give you a really simple example. What is the difference between the Grand Canyon and Mount Rushmore? The difference between the Grand Canyon and Mount Rushmore. You see, the Grand Canyon, we can easily come up with some theory for how that was caused. I have yet to discover someone writing a book as far as how random processes created Mount Rushmore. I'm sure there would be a conspiracy theory in the very first chapter of how, people, well, how we think that people carved this, but really, it was random processes of erosion. I don't know of anyone who's written a book of it. Well, why? Why? Why is it when you look at Mount Rushmore and you compare it to Grand Canyon, you say, wait a second, Mount Rushmore, that's design. The Grand Canyon, beautiful, but not. And it's what they call ordered complexity. Ordered complexity. Let me ask you this. If you were walking along the beach and you were to find these words, 
Mike loves Meredith, and you happen to know a Mike and know a Meredith, would you say to yourself, wow, what an amazing job these waves did in creating these letters, Mike loves Meredith. What a coincidence. You wouldn't. None of you would. Not even the greatest scientist would. Why? Because we know this, that every single language is created by an intelligent being. Every single language that we are aware of, it is they are all created by an intelligent being. Now let's talk about DNA. We often call it the DNA code, but it's really a language. It's really a language. <laughs> by observation, we know that all languages are intelligently designed. Did you know that the smallest living cell has 473 genes that make up its DNA strand. That's the smallest known DNA strand that can function in a living cell. It can't be any smaller. If it's any smaller, it cannot produce life. It cannot replicate, etc. The smallest 473 genes, which is about 531,000 nucleotides. You know, those little adenosine and all those group, three of them grouped together, 531,000 of those. Where did life begin? We have to backtrack here. Okay, well, there's nucleotides here, and then proteins form these nucleotides, or these nucleotides form the DNA, and then amino acids form the protein, and all of these atoms form amino acids. So we have atoms randomly bumping against one another suddenly form a, an amino acid, and the amino acids are beginning to bump against one another, and they suddenly form a protein. And as these proteins are blindly searching and grouping, and finally they form 473 genes of the smallest DNA, and wow, now we have life. There was one particular scientist who gave this very simple illustration, a probability scientist. He said, just that first step, atoms to an, to an amino acid, just that one. Forget about the proteins and DNA strand and all of that. He says this, just to get from those atoms to the amino acid, one amino acid would be like this. You walk into a junkyard with a pile of C4, you put it in the middle of the junkyard, you set it off, and you blow it up. And all of the metal flies up into the air. And if you're Brian, you're thinking, yeah, it's awesome! And the rest of us are wondering, where's it going to land? Hope it's not on my house. And it all falls back into the junkyard, and voila! So perfectly forming a Boeing 747. That is the probability of atoms randomly connecting to form an amino acid. Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, a very well-known atheist in our day, even he says that the simplest single cell contains as much information as 100,000 volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica. The smallest cell. One, all the information that 100,000 volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica would hold is in that one cell. That even Richard Dawkins, an atheist, must say, is a language. Do you see? And we all languages are intelligently designed. Now, Sam, I've noticed over in your house you have a set of world book. Two sets, okay. Takes up each set, maybe a shelf, something like this. And it would be how many books, how many volumes? 23 volumes. Okay, we're looking for 100,000. And Encyclopedia Britannica, last I checked, are thicker than the world, world books. Not to put world books down by any means. But can you imagine trying to fit 100,000 volumes of world book or Encyclopedia Britannica just in their family room? And they have a large family room. They wouldn't fit. As a matter of fact, you would have to fill that room several times to fit all those volumes. And yet all of that information is found in one, the simplest in quote, simplest, single cell. 
But as secular science would have us believe, this all happened by random chance. Note, my friends, there is serious, serious design in this universe, which tells me, again, there is a powerful being. He is eternal and lives outside of my petty existence and reality, and he is so intelligent, I would be bold enough to utter infinitely intelligent. He is that intelligent. Well, now let's look at one more. How, what's commonly called, and C.S. Lewis really championed this one, the moral argument. Here's what we find. As we look in every culture, all anthropologists, as they're searching and studying all of these various cultures, they realize something. Aha, light bulb moment. All of these cultures have a basic morality. They say murder is wrong. Now, every culture has like, murder is wrong, but murder is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Honor your parents and authority. It's inbred in these cultures. And so here's my question. Where did all of that come from? And the best thing that science can say, since they want to excuse God and suppress this knowledge, is let me talk to you about the moral gene. Yeah, wait a second. Totally hypothetical. Uh, May I be so bold as to say you have no clue what you're talking about here. You really don't because science has never discovered this moral gene. We have only supposed it. Now, can I just take, can I just say this at this point? Excellent book if you have a chance to read it. But the title of it is, It Takes More Faith to Be an Atheist. Oh, goodness. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Interesting book. And it, it walks you through 12 arguments to explain this, coming to the point that we know through the Gospels, Jesus died and rose from the grave. And there is so much evidence all along the way here. We're just talking of, about a little bit here. You see, the bottom line, the reason why I believe in God, I, don't, I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And faith is taking the evidence and taking a leap of faith to make a conclusion. There is so little evidence that supports atheism, their step to say there is no God is so huge. Uh, you might as well believe in the, the green monster that created everything and is a blob that maybe one day that blob might like you and allow you to live forever. I mean, just, I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And so the argument goes, but here in the moral argument, we, we've got to ask this question, not just where did morality come from, but what is morality? What is right and wrong? If you're going to say, then how did a good God, why does a good God allow evil? You have told me right off the bat that you believe there's a good and you believe there's an evil. And why do you believe that? Because according to those who are suppressing this truth of God, they would say that morality is exactly like vanilla ice cream and chocolate ice cream. Some like vanilla, some like chocolate. You know, don't tell people your opinions about right and wrong. Those are your opinions. So let me ask you, I would say to them, was the Holocaust right or wrong? Oh my goodness, now that was wrong. Thank you so much. We agree on something. You agree that the Holocaust was wrong. If you had the opportunity, would you even risk your life to stop the Holocaust? Oh yes, I would. Amazing. Why would you? And there's only one reason, because killing people is wrong, and they know it and they cannot escape it, and it is not a flavor. Hitler would say, I'm sorry, it's just that I like vanilla and you like chocolate. Leave me to my vanilla ice cream, please. And that's the rationale. And I would have to say, wait a second. There is a right and a wrong. There is good in this world, and there is evil in this world. But I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. 
We could also extrapolate other things. We've seen that he's powerful, he's eternal, he's intelligent, and this God is moral. And I'm going to say, yes, he is good. When you look at creation, you observe things, you observe its beauty, and you are struck by its incredible beauty. You cannot escape it. You look at a flower and its intricacies and you say, that's beautiful. And there's something inside of you that recognizes beauty. Why? Because God created you to recognize that. And yes, as scripture says, you were created in his image. So of course you recognize beauty. God is also creative. That's a given, huh? We would also suggest that God loves things like art. That God is not just good, but he is also loving. Because even the Aborigine in the outback of Australia is going to ask this question, why? Yes, there is a God. And yes, he created everything. But me, mankind, why? There is something inside of us that wants a relationship. There is something that wants us to have a relationship with this God. It is inescapable. We all possess it. And as Ecclesiastes says, eternity is in their hearts. There's something that yearns for this eternal God because eternity is in our hearts. And so, we would be able to say God created all of this and even put this desire for relationships in my heart because he longs for a relationship with you. God is a relational God. He created this, putting us so separate from the animal kingdom. He created us for a purpose. Now, here's something that's interesting. We, as a people, are purpose-driven. And if we are just the result of random processes, where do we get this drivenness for purpose from something called nature that has no purpose at all? No, it's because a God of purpose purposefully created me to have a relationship with him. Even the aborigine in the outback of Australia would come to these conclusions as he's following these breadcrumbs that God has purposefully displayed in his creation. And now we come to this issue of what I'm going to call evil. We see all of this beauty. It's everywhere but there are blemishes here and there that we're going to call evil. There are tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and droughts and, and, and famines that kill people. But I thought God was good. I'm, this is what I'm gathering. So how do I fit evil into this? Diseases. Diseases snuff out or can snuff out the life of human beings and animals. Why? And then lastly, we can know this for certain. There is something inside of me that recognizes evil in me. People do things and they hurt you. And you don't like that. And I don't know of anyone who would disagree with this, even the atheist. That must be wrong. This is not a chocolate and vanilla discussion here. This is an absolute, this is a right and a wrong. You offended me and I'm hurt and I don't like this. You want to kill me? Why wouldn't you allow them to do that? It's not right or wrong. They just like vanilla, which means you being dead. No, there is something inside of us in which we would recognize you know what? I do this to other people too. That infection that I see in this display of the cosmos, that infection, this evil, it's in me. I do the very same things that I hate people doing to me. And there would be something then inside of us that would say this God, this intelligent, powerful loving, good God does not like 
my sin. I don't like it when people sin against me. He must not like it when I sin against him. Do you see this? This is a breadcrumb that we can easily see in creation, specifically in our own hearts. You see, Paul here in verse 9, 19, excuse me, he says, since what may be known about God is plain to them. The Greek word there is really, it's plain in them. And then he goes on to say, because God has made it plain to them. Different Greek word, to them. In our hearts, in our hearts, we know this to be true. In our hearts, we know that there is sin. So is God both good and evil? Well, that's what we see in the Greek pantheon. Every God is both good and evil. Some are much more good than evil. And there are other gods, that, like Hades, in which he was more evil than good. But all the gods are good and evil. Is this God I'm going to tell you that that cannot be because this good in this infinite being would be able to rectify that evil. He would be able to correct it if it were in him. It would be an infection in him as well. And I would suggest to you that is impossible. Either God is all good or he is all evil. Now look around this world. Do you see a world that is all evil? When you look at a flower, do you say that's ugly? No, you see an incredible masterpiece. And if you were to be looking at a painting of, say, the Grand Canyon, and you were to just be awestruck by its beauty, but someone came up and they put a black mark on it, would you say that that is an ugly painting? No, here's how you would characterize That is a beautiful painting, but there is a mark on it that devalues it. And so I'm going to suggest to you, this world that God created, it is good, but there is an infection that we call sin, and it spreads. And there is something inside of us that would want to cry out to this God that created me, rescue me from this body of sin. And I'm using Paul's words here. Rescue me. Who will rescue me? That is the good news. That is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans 7, Paul's conclusion to this, who will rescue me from this body of death? The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the only answer. The only answer that we can, we can come to. This evil, it pervades. If we were to look out over creation, we would recognize that there is something seriously wrong. And that something that's seriously wrong is wrong within me. And I'm going to suggest to you that apart, apart from man suppressing this truth by their wickedness, as I mentioned in the beginning, they would fall on their knees and they would cry out to this God who created them, rescue me. Let me just give you an example, and I'm going to encourage you, if this, if this is interesting, is that really true? Read the book, Eternity in Their Hearts, by Don Richardson. He's an anthro a Christian anthropologist, written extensively, and in this book, he describes a gentleman by the name of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson is in Burma, is reaching the Buddhists for seven years. He's translating the scriptures, and he, there is no converts. And in the seventh year, someone finally responds to the gospel. And this is a man who is a murderer, starts working for him, gets converted, but finds out this man is not a Buddhist. He's not even of the same people in the city of Burma. He is actually from a group called the Karain. And this gentleman, Kothan Bu, says, you know what? I want to tell my people about this. And he begins to preach the gospel to his people. And literally thousands come to Christ. Thousands, church. England, where Adam Judson is from, he says, this can't be. This is, 
this just doesn't fit. I mean, there's nowhere near that many people who are coming to Christ here in, in England. What's up? And Adoniram Judson studies this, and he finds that embedded in their culture is, is the gospel. It is evi- not just evidence of God, but evidence of this hope of the gospel. And I'm going to suggest to you that in every culture, and this is the purpose of his book, in every culture, God has not left himself without a witness. There is something in that culture that reveals him. And I would suggest to you that if that aborigine in the outback of Australia were to fall on his knees, not suppressing the truth, but would say, oh God, show me the way because I cannot make myself good. I I, I want to do good, but I cannot do it. Show me the way. And God will send him an Adoniram Judson. That is the heart of God. The problem is sin, and it says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And how is that? Number one, God eventually says, you love your sin, you want to use your sin to suppress this truth, then I'm going to let you do that. I'm just going to give you over to your sin. And it says in verse 20, 24, therefore God gave them over in the sexual desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. In verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. In verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthy to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. He continually will give a culture, a people, over to their sins so that they will indulge in more sin. And they, they become what, what we realize are serial sinners. It is sinners who, who they they. they, they They sear their consciences, they excuse their behavior, and they open wide this door to more sin. And it's happening in the church in which sexual immorality, oh, that's got to be okay. Why? Because I can't get rid of it in my heart, so I can't just deal with this guilt on my life, so it must be okay. And God, if if we are not careful, he's going to give his own people over to their sin. This happens in every culture. And eventually, God allows the destruction of that culture. So God reveals his wrath in giving us over to our sin. And as as Paul says here in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, there will be a day in which he will bring judgment. We're going to look at that next week. But he says in verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of judgment when his righteous judgment will be revealed. When you share the gospel, what you are really doing is you are approaching someone and sharing with them the answer for the sickness, the the angst in their own soul that cries out for a God to rescue them. The problem, though, is they are so busy suppressing this truth. Let me read to you. This is from John Stott. He says this, very interesting in his book, The Cross of Christ. He says, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. That is profound. That is the gospel. That is Christ coming to this earth and identifying with my angst and my suffering and the decay of this world this sin sickness in God's otherwise beautiful creation and then going to the cross so that when you share this good news with every single soul, there is something within their hearts that wants to hear what you have to say because apart from what you offer them, there is no hope. No hope.
So I would suggest this. That even the atheist himself, apart from suppressing the truth as he does, because the evidence for the existence of God towers far above any kind of evidence that would suggest otherwise. It's just that they can't deal with God. Because if you follow the breadcrumbs, I am accountable before God, and I have no answer. But to fall on my knees and say, oh God, show me the way. Show me the way. So when you share this gospel with them, you are sharing with them the only answer for this sin sickness in their heart that they have been searching for all of their life, that they have not come up with any answer and all the while suppressing this truth. There's no answer. How do I deal with this? It must not be. It must not be. And yet there is this constant stirring in their soul. The answer, my friends, is the good news. And the good news is summed up in one word, Jesus. Can you stand with me? Lord God, no one, no one will be without excuse. What a privilege you have given us to share this good news in the face of this bad news. The ship is going down. And all lives on deck will be lost if there is no rescue plan. But you have given us that rescue plan in Jesus. And I just ask you, God, if there is anyone here listening, that they would come to this realization. Jesus, you are the only answer to what ails me and what is killing me inside. And I just ask you, Lord, please use us. Use us as your ambassadors, as your tools to share that good news with a dying, hurting world that knows they need this answer. Anoint us, God, and embolden us, God. And may we live this gospel out as well. In Jesus' name, amen.